The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week we'll be looking at coal and our efforts to reduce our dependence on it. Later on in the show, we'll talk about how exactly coal impacts the environment and get some details on clean coal. But first, let's get a sense of how coal, or getting off coal, has impacted people. Stay tuned. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and my guest today is Richard Martin, the energy editor at the MIT Technology Review. Richard has been writing about energy, technology, and geopolitics for more than 20 years, and his work has appeared in Time, Wired, The Atlantic, Fortune, and many other publications. He's here to talk about his new book, Coal Wars, The Future of Energy and the Fate of the Planet. Good to have you here, Richard. Thanks very much. So let's start out by saying uh, your unequivocal position in this book is that as a species, we have to get off coal, correct? Yeah, that is correct. Coal is the dirtiest form of power generation, and um, especially in a time when the price of alternative ways of producing electricity are, are coming down so quickly, um, the economic rationale for coal has gone away, and certainly the environmental uh, forces are, are really driving us to get away from coal as quickly as possible. Well, and the reason I point that out is because although that is your position, the, the book takes a, a very realistic and often very compassionate look at the, the challenges of moving away from coal, uh, both from the perspective of those who really do want to get beyond fossil fuels and those who are almost literally being dragged kicking and screaming away from them. Uh, so was that your initial goal or did you, or did that come along with meeting the people that you interviewed? I would say it was my initial goal. You know, as a writer, you look for stories that allow you to give voice to the unvoiced and, and shine light in dark places. And I think one thing that's happened in the debate over our energy system is that um, some of the people who have been producing uh, power and mining coal for decades and have been paid to do so and have been, you know, more or less rewarded by society, uh, their voices have been forgotten. And to the credit of the Obama administration, um, even as, you know, the proponents of the coal industry say that President Obama is waging a, a war on coal, the fact is the administration has made some efforts to uh, accomplish what many people call a just transition away from fossil fuels. So in other words, finding uh, new economic engines for communities that have depended on coal for, for nearly 100 years, finding new jobs and, and support for retraining for miners and for workers in the coal industry. And I really think that's what, that's what has to happen. And, and like I said, there's just a lot of great stories that go along with this huge transition that we're making. Anytime you have this kind of transfer Transformation in a global industry that's been around as long as the coal industry has. What you have are uh, great and often heart-wrenching narratives, and that's really what I set out to. That's a story I set out to tell. Well, maybe give us a sense of of the history of the coal industry in the U.S. Well, coal, in many ways, um, you know, fired the industrial revolution worldwide, and, and certainly that was true uh, in in the United States, and and really since the middle of the 19th century and certainly since the Civil War, you know, coal was really the, the fuel that powered the uh, economic, uh, the series of economic booms that, that made the U.S. Uh, a superpower. I mean, coal has traditionally accounted for 
more than half of the power generation in this country and and as you know you know whole communities particularly um in the east and in the the rust belt so to speak were were literally fueled by coal and and it's not just in Appalachia either i mean if you look at the last couple of decades, really, the coal heartland of the U.S. has been the Powder River Basin in Wyoming, which is one of the places I visited for the book. And and so you really, it's hard to imagine our current technological society without coal. And because coal-fired power generation is out of sight of most people, uh, literally, they don't really think about it when they turn on a light or, or boot up their computer or use a smartphone. Um, and and in this globalized area, that's even more true in in many ways because China, which produces many of the products that we use every day, um, they get 75 to 80 percent of the power generation from coal. And and so one of the conclusions I arrived at in the reporting of the book is that we are all complicit in this system that's really still dependent on burning carbon laced rocks that we dig out of the ground and it's going to take uh it's going to take a pretty conscious transition to get away from that. Well, maybe give us a, a sense of how the structure of the industry has changed from when it began to now. Well, one of the biggest changes is what I mentioned just now, which is the transition away from underground mining mostly in Appalachia to um, strip mining or open pit mines, mostly in the West, particularly in, in Wyoming. And literally, if you go to places like eastern Kentucky and West Virginia today, what you'll find is um, a lot of that coal has, the, the coal seams that are economical to mine have been mined out. And, and literally, you have these sort of hollow hills where it's, it's gotten more and more expensive to, to mine the coal. At the same time, in a paradoxical way, the Clean Air Act really um, caused a boom for some of the Appalachian coal mines, and particularly the um, Illinois Basin, which is sort of on the backside, the, the western side of the Appalachian, because what happened was initially um, power plants were unable to burn the really high uh, carbon coal that, that Appalachia is known for. So people refer to, to coal as hot or cool, depending on the, the basically the amount, the number of BTUs you can get from a given unit of a given volume of coal. And um, but what happened was over time, um, the companies, the utilities started installing scrubbers and other forms of air pollution technology that allowed them to burn lower uh, carbon coal. And it, and it really shifted um, the, it really caused a coal boom, like I said, in places like the Illinois Basin where um, the, the coal was dirtier in that it, it led to more carbon emissions, but it had a higher energy content. So that's one of the things, one of the sort of unseen forces that has has driven a shift and, and and has really ended up hurting the Appalachian industry in a lot of ways. So why the declining coal production exactly? What you're seeing is a combination of market forces and regulation that are driving um, utilities away from burning coal. And, and really, the most immediate factor right now is the shale gas revolution. Once natural gas reached a price threshold where it was just as economical to burn natural gas for power generation as it is to burn coal, the utilities, given a choice, will burn the cleaner fuel. And as you probably know, 
Um, natural gas, when it's burned to produce electricity, emits about 50% of the, the carbon into the atmosphere that burning coal does. And so that's really, in the last 10 years, has been the, the real factor that's driven the decline of the coal industry. At the same time, of course, you're seeing a policy shift where the Obama administration has successfully limited uh, carbon emissions from new power plants that are planned or under construction and now in the form of the Clean Power Plan, which was released last year by the EPA, is, is attempting to limit carbon emissions from existing power plants. That would really signal the death knell for the industry and the, and the coal industry is well aware of that. If carbon emissions from existing power plants are limited, there's no way that the you know the coal-fired generation fleet has a future, and what we've seen is retirements of coal plants are accelerating. And again, it's not just because of regulation; it's because of market forces which are are driving the you know fuel fuel switching um, mostly to natural gas as well. And and so when you hear Mitch McConnell on the Senate floor railing against the Obama administration's war on coal. What he's ignoring is that, in fact, utilities are shifting away from coal, even leaving aside the regulatory uh, element, and, and it's really economics that are driving a lot of that. So now what does the industry think of all this? I talked to um, Greg Boyce, who's the CEO of Peabody Energy, which is the largest private sector uh, coal mining company in the world, and his take is that, look, this is a moral question. We can't afford to shift off of coal because there are a billion people in the developing world who are without access to reliable electricity. And so if we tell them you can't burn coal, there's no other way to provide that electricity, um, certainly in the next couple of decades. So it's it's been really interesting to see this shift. And I think Peabody as a company, not to harp on them, but that, that they're a real good uh, indicator of this larger industry shift. For years, they were climate change deniers and um, were really spending a lot of money, just like the oil companies, to deny that climate change is a problem. And it's kind of shifted now to say, okay, well, Climate change might happen, you know, 20 or 30 or 50 years from now, but right now there are all these people who need power, who need electricity and, and have the right to um, have their homes lit and heated and cooled, et cetera. And so to say that we're going to stop mining and burning coal is to leave them in the dark, literally, and, and that's that's a, a moral choice that, that we're, we don't have the right to make. So it's been this interesting um, shift to, to watch in the end. Well, you've laid out the book geographically to give people a sense of how different places have taken uh, extremely different paths around coal. So uh, I'd like to talk about Kentucky, uh, specifically Harlan County. You can't talk about coal in the U.S. without talking about Appalachia, and you can't talk about Appalachia without talking about eastern Kentucky, specifically Harlan County, which has been, you know, immortalized in various books and the movie Harlan County, USA, et cetera, is the scene of the, the earlier Cold Wars back in, in the 1970s and, and really the, the fight over coal mining and mountaintop removal and uh, the fate of communities that are dependent on coal is, is has been played out for decades in, in uh, Harlan County. So now, some, how is some place like Harlan County, which uh, was, you know, the center of the coal boom, uh, how has it changed since the boom end, ended? 
Well, I went to um, some communities that have been coal mining towns for a long time. One in particular is called Holmes Mill. It's barely even a town. And um, it's really fascinating to see the same houses that were built by the coal company back in the 1920s are still standing there. They've been, you know, upgraded and repainted a little bit, but still the same kind of row houses um, that were company housing decades ago are still there. The difference now is they've got big um, fancy pickup trucks parked outside that were bought on credit. And uh, now they're owned by the bank and and, uh, unemployed miners are trying to find a way to keep them. So if you're a, a repo man, it's a good time to be working in eastern Kentucky. So how is the the local coal industry responding? Well, um, frankly, it's mixed. I mean, certainly there is a lot of anger and bitterness among the the coal mining communities. They feel like not only has it's not only that the Obama administration in specific has, um, you know, started to wage what they consider a war on coal. It's a larger issue that they feel abandoned. I mean, these are people who literally risked their lives for decades to mine coal, and and many of these jobs are handed down generation to generation. And, you know, they're they're good jobs. They're relatively high-paying jobs for people with uh, relatively little education, and um, now they're going away, and and they're not coming back, and and so these people um, have watched booms and busts in the coal industry for many years, but but this is in many ways the last bust, and and there's not another boom on the horizon. So, like I said, there's a lot of anger, but I'll also say there's a disconnect between their elected representatives um, in Washington, D.C., and sort of the the mayors and the economic development officials on the ground who have to look their neighbor in the eye every day and find a way to, you know, provide, help them provide for their families and, and find a, an, a way forward to some form of future prosperity. In other words, what I'm saying is, if you're Mitch McConnell, it's easy to stand on the Senate floor and make speeches about the war on coal. It's a lot different if you're there every day and you have to think about what's actually happening in these communities. And as one uh, economic development official in Mingo County, Kentucky, said to me, there's no mystery about what's happening here. Um, Coal is not coming back. Coal is not the future for these communities. And so we've got to figure out what comes next. Well, and that's what's so interesting is is we may be able to say that the coal is not coming back, but the people in these communities, there are pro-coal community groups. These are organized individuals, correct? Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, there have been uh, plenty of rallies on the Capitol steps, both in in uh, Kentucky and West Virginia and in Washington, D.C. And, and I went to one actually uh, near my home in Colorado, um, literally outside the Capitol in Denver. And, um, you know, these people don't see a, a future right now. And there's not much being done to provide them with hope and, and new jobs, et cetera. And so, it, that anger is understandable. And, you know, as a society, it's not a good idea to simply abandon a workforce like that. And and there are efforts going on to to help, you know, retrain and reeducate and, and find jobs for some of these people. But one comparison I made in the, uh, in the book, and actually th- this was, I, I didn't 
it wasn't original to me. One of the people I talked to out in um, the Yampa Valley in, in Colorado said this to me, what would it take to simply retire every coal miner in the U.S. right now and provide them with a pension or some form of retraining? How much would that cost? And, you know, you can come up with a back of the neck and figure it'd probably be something like uh, one to two billion dollars, which is a lot less than it cost to, to bail out uh, Detroit a few years right. ago. And so, again, just as a matter of social policy, it's not a good idea to have lots of um, disenfranchised, embittered former coal miners who are frankly mostly well-armed to be totally alienated from the federal government. And, and so I think whatever you think of the coal industry as a matter of social policy, you know, we need to figure out a, a way forward for these people and, and some economic future. And I have noticed that in sort of the messaging uh, around environmentalist groups, uh, around the, they're actually trying to pay attention to the job losses, which which they didn't for a long time. It was kind of it, just the idea was treated with disdain that, that we should care that people were losing their jobs. Like the environment is more important than your jobs. And if you don't like it, move. So, so what's the problem with that idea? Uh, yeah, I actually, um, I was at a uh, fundraiser in Denver um, and a, a prominent democratic political strategist who will go unnamed said to me, I've had, and this is him talking, I've had, you know, a dozen jobs in my life. Nobody has a job uh, for life anymore. And why don't they just move to North Dakota? And what he, what he didn't mention was that most coal miners certainly in Colorado, vote Republican. And if they move to another state, they're not voting <laughs> Republican in Colorado. So there is Using an underlying... Using his own self-interest against him. Like right, that. right. But no, I, I completely agree with you that um, the environmental movement has sort of woken up to this need for some form of a just transition. And if you talk to specifically the Sierra Club and the people who run their Beyond Coal campaign, they'll they'll tell you about specific instances. There was one coal plant in um, Washington State that got shut down and they worked with the utility and the state government and the local officials to craft a transition plan so that for the most part, the workers at that plant were uh, taken care of, so to speak. In other words, they had other job opportunities and retraining, et cetera. And I think that's not cheap. It's not cheap in terms of money, but it's also not cheap in terms of time and sort of mental uh, energy and attention devoted to figuring this out. And, and so I think as we go forward in this huge transition away from coal, we really do have to to pay that attention and, and, you know, spend that money and spend that, uh, you know, that thought and that, and that awareness. Um, I'll give you another example. I uh, went to uh, Eastern Tennessee, where the John Severe coal plant was shut down about two years ago, and they literally built this brand new natural gas plant across the road from the coal plant. And there were about, I think, about 140 people working at the coal plant. But at the natural gas plant, you only need about 35 people to run it. And this was a plant that was owned and operated by the Tennessee Valley Authority. And the TVA is really a, a, a fascinating study of, of this larger transition that's going on. And the authority did um, offer everyone that worked at that coal plant, they offered them a job, not necessarily right there in 
uh, Rogersville, which is the little town where that coal plant is situated, they said you can move to, you know, Knoxville or, but, you know, they really went out of their way to try to provide for those people. And, and I talked to several of those workers and they were actually very grateful and, and admiring of what the TVA had done. Having said that, a lot of them couldn't move. They had family issues, et cetera. And, and so there are, um, job losses associated with this transition kind of no matter how you look at it. And, and especially in some of those rural communities, particularly in, in Appalachia, it's a cycle because the coal plant is often the economic engine for the local community and, and the source of jobs that drives, you know, the retail jobs and the restaurants, et cetera, et cetera. The coal plant shut down. A lot of those other jobs go away. So um, it's it's not an easy problem to to solve. But there are certainly some efforts underway to at least re- wrestle with it and, and find some solutions. Well, now let's let's talk about some other U.S. towns that are dealing with with coal in a completely different way. Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> they are <laughs> they are running a very interesting experiment. Yes. And um, just to be clear, I live in Boulder and, um, you know, Boulder is a unique town often called the People's Republic of Boulder. And what happened here is so the the large utility that serves this part of Colorado is XL Energy and um, the town of Boulder, which is very progressive and very devoted to getting to, you know, zero carbon emissions had an ongoing struggle with Excel trying to get more renewable energy, trying to move away from coal. And by the way, literally, if you go up into the foothills from my five minutes from my house and look east, what you see is a coal plant, the Valmont Coal Station, which has been there for more than 50 years and is still operating, you know, and it's this odd sort of dissonance to be in Boulder, one of the greenest communities in the country, and, and what you see looking out toward the plains is is a coal plant, you know. Um, so what happened was Boulder finally got fed up. We had a referendum a couple of years ago, and we decided to municipalize, which is kind of a, a um, back-to-the-future movement that's going on in, in other communities as well. A lot of the utilities that provided power back before World War II were municipal. They were local utilities ran their own coal plants, uh, you know, operated the transmission lines and, and supplied power to the city or the surrounding countryside. And so Boulder is has now embarked on this program to take over the municipal utility that we're going to run our own power plants. It's going to be all renewable, supposedly. And um, we'll see what happens. I I, I like this supposedly to... because I read the book. <laughs> yeah. Um, here's the thing. If you look at the spectrum of U.S. utilities on, you know, ranging from totally still clinging to coal for 80% of their power generation to really moving forward into the future of renewable and, and cleaner forms of producing electricity, Excel is relatively progressive and, you know, they've done a lot to try to, you know, embrace the the new future. The fact is they've got legacy coal plants. They can't afford to shut them down immediately. And the people of Boulder are in a hurry. And so I happen to think power generation is one of those things that may be better left to the professionals. And I think Boulder may have bitten off more than we really want to chew um, and it's going to be, it, it, you referred to it as an experiment, and, and I really do think it's going to be an interesting experiment to watch. And there are certainly people 
here um, that will tell you that that it's foolish for Boulder to to try to make this move um, when when in fact Excel had made some concessions and was actually making a good faith effort to to give the city of Boulder you know more choice and where it where its power comes from. So I think that whole municipalization movement is going to be really interesting to watch, and certainly Boulder is going to be a tough case. You're listening to Science for the People, and we'll be back with more on. Cold Wars with author Richard Martin after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google Plus, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell, and I'm joined by Richard Martin, energy editor at the MIT Technology Review and author of Cold Wars, The Future of Energy and the Fate of the Planet. Okay, let's talk about China. <laughs> what's what's happening with coal there? Well, again, um, you know, we're, we're in the U.S., we're making this big shift away from coal, and that same shift is going to happen in China for a variety of market forces and political reasons and international climate talk reasons, et cetera. But really what's happened in China is there's been a a sort of implicit bargain between the people and the government. And the bargain has been, we will provide you with 10% economic growth a year and we'll bring millions of people out of poverty and into the middle class and, and really attain an economic miracle. And in return, you will give us political acquiescence and you'll accept rampant environmental damage. And that, certainly on the latter score, that bargain is breaking down, and there is a nascent environmental movement in China. And not only that, but the political leadership has realized that for the economy to keep growing, they simply can't keep destroying their environment at the rate they have been. And so people ask me, is China serious about getting off of coal? The answer is absolutely they're serious. And and China is the world's largest investor in renewable energy technology by a wide margin. But the fact is they're starting from a much tougher place than the U.S. is. I, I mentioned that historically the U.S. has gotten a little over half of its uh, power generation from coal. In China, that number is closer to 75 or 80 percent. And there are entire cities of millions of people in the north and the west of China that are based around coal mines and based around huge power plants. And um, the level of social unrest that would happen if, if China really embarked on a radical uh, move away from coal would be too much for the country to bear. And so um, while they are definitely instituting measures to move away from coal, there's no way to do it in, in a short time period. And so it's just going to take a longer, a longer time. And one of what, what is also happening, you know, China is a huge country full of contradictions, et cetera. And, and, those contradictions extend to national poly- energy policy as well. And one of the other things is happening. So what happens in China is the air is really bad in the coastal cities of 
Beijing and, and Shanghai and uh, Shenzhen, et cetera. And that's where much of the economic activity and certainly where most of the um, expatriate businesses are. And so they're trying to clean up the, the air over Beijing, let's say. And what they're doing is what used to be called coal by wire. So they're basically shutting down the coal-fired power plants that are near the big cities on the coast and moving them inland to be situated near the coal mines themselves and building these huge transmission lines um, to the coast, which is going to be good for Beijing. And actually, the air quality in Beijing has improved noticeably in the last couple of years. It doesn't do anything for China's overall carbon emissions. And in fact, in some ways, it could make them worse. So, um, you know, I, I call it the great migration, the great coal migration. And they're really just kind of shoving it under the rug of the, the inland provinces rather than trying, rather than being able to, to shut down the coal plants altogether. Do you think there's like a genuine willingness to lessen their dependence on coal? Oh, yes, absolutely. I do. And again, that's out of necessity. And it's also out of, you know, it's being driven by a dawning environmental awareness among the people. I mean, I talk to, and, and let me also add, there's no debate about climate change in China. There's none of this, uh, you know, nonsense about is the climate really changing and is it being caused by humans? Because, you know, the, the effects are felt every day in China. And so everyone I talk to from, coal executives to environmental activists to coal miners themselves are well aware that, that the climate's changing and a lot of it's being driven by um, bur the burning of coal. Um, and so people are less and less willing to accept the environmental destruction that they see around them, and they're less and less willing to uh, have to bring their kids up in a, in a world that is uh, hotter and drier than the one they've known. And so, um, you know, the government, as time has gone on, has given more leeway to environmental groups to uh, let their voices be heard. At the same time, there have been a couple of cases where um, planned coal plants were actually shut, were, were actually, the plans were abandoned because of opposition from local environmental groups and in some cases local officials themselves and, and that's happened just in the last five years and certainly that's unprecedented in, in Chinese history but, but again the, the level of dependence today on coal in China is, is so great that, it, that it's going to take decades, not years. Well, so if China does lessen its dependence and the U.S. coal producers are pretty much pinning their entire basket of hopes on China, then what is that going to do to whatever's less left of the coal industry in the U.S.? Well, as um, one of the leaders of the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign said to me, this is their last gasp. In other words, if these coal exports to China don't materialize, you're going to see uh, coal producing companies in this country going bankrupt. And in fact, you, you're already seeing that. And if you look at, you know, what Wall Street foresees, you, you can, it's easy to see that, um, again, if, unless they can export their coal specifically to Asia and more specifically to China, um, they don't have a future. And, and again, one thing to keep in mind is that Peabody Energy, for instance, the largest U.S. producer of coal, is more or less exclusively a coal miner and it competes with 
huge international mining conglomerates like Rio Tinto that are diversified. They mine copper, they mine platinum, they in some cases mine uranium, and so they have other um, operations to fall back on that the, in general the U.S. companies don't. And so let's just say I wouldn't be investing in uh, U.S. domestic coal producers right now. All right. So one of the things that, that we didn't actually touch on, and I thought we might, um, was the ethical considerations around exporting coal to developing countries in the first place. Sure. Um, we in the U.S. have been exporting garbage to China for many years, and essentially now we want to export our dirty energy to China. And, um, you know, as a you might think that as a citizen of the U.S. that, well, you know, these coal companies are big companies. They're on the, you know, stock exchange. We want them to survive and thrive. But as a citizen of the planet, there's no question that we need to burn less coal. And so, you know, I have great sympathy and compassion for coal miners and coal employees that have worked in this industry and whose families' livelihood is dependent on this industry. I have much less sympathy for the executives of the coal mining companies who are trying to, to pull off these exports. And the fact is, the opposition that they're facing is quite strong um, on ethical grounds, on economic grounds, et cetera. And so at one point, there were six large coal export terminals that were being planned um, on the West Coast, and at least three of those have been canceled, and the prospects for the other three are not that bright. So um, whatever you think of the ethics, I think it's going to be tough to for the domestic coal mining companies to, to really pull this off. But, but yes, I mean, there are plenty of other ways in which we could be helping China and Indonesia and Vietnam move forward into a cleaner energy future. Exporting coal is not one of them. Well, and also there was there was the the argument that you mentioned in the book that if, if we if we don't export the coal, then it stays here, and so we have some kind of control over it, uh, and therefore a bit more control over its effects on climate change. And we lose that if it's shipped to another country. That's right. And, um, you know, <laughs> that sort of leads us into the whole discussion around, quote, clean coal, uh, unquote, and uh, which I happen to think is an oxymoron. I've actually been in, in a previous life. I worked at a energy research and analysis firm called Navigant Research, and I did a fairly lengthy report on carbon capture and sequestration back in 2010. And what I concluded at that time was a lot of the projections for capturing carbon from the smokestack of coal plants, in other words, burning the coal and then capturing the carbon and shipping it to where it can be buried deep underground, um, there is no way that's going to be economic in any foreseeable time frame. And so um, that's the other argument that the coal industry uses that, well, we need to keep burning coal and keep doing the research and development on finding newer, cleaner ways to burn coal. And um, I just think that's an oxymoron. And 
the, the, we've already spent hundreds of millions, if not billions, on research into carbon capture and sequestration and other forms of so-called clean coal. And if we had spent that on, you know, more efficient solar panels and better, uh, a more efficient grid, et cetera, we would already be seeing the benefits. So um, that argument that that we should keep the coal industry going and just find cleaner ways to burn it, I, I, I don't buy that. Okay, I'm going to ask you for a couple of predictions. What do you see from uh, as the future of coal, let's say, in 10 years? Well, so let's talk about um, coal-fired plants specifically. Um, the retirements of coal-fired plants, which are being driven, again, by economic forces as well as regulatory ones, are only going to accelerate. And so we're there was actually a bit of a rebound uh, in 2013-2014 for coal burning. So it went from something like under 35% of power generation back up to closer to 40%. I think that percentage is going to continue to drop. And, you know, again, these are big changes. They're big plants. They take a long time to shut down. So it's not going to happen overnight. But it would not surprise me at all if the percentage of power that we in the U.S. get from coal-fired plants dips below 30% um, even as soon as 10 years from now. Really? That is incredibly optimistic. I was not expecting that. (laughs) All right. So how about, let's say, 30 years? Well, 30 years, you know, my line on the more distant future is either that the coal industry is going to shut down one way or another. In other words, either things are just going to collapse and the effects of climate change are going to be so catastrophic that, you know, we're, our modern society is going to be in some form of collapse or we're going to figure out a way to shut it down. So either we're going to shut down the coal industry or it's going to shut us down. So 30 years, um, I really, I mean, if you look at the cost curves for renewable energy, um, they're dropping in price very rapidly right now. And I think that's going to continue. So, you know, I am, I'm pessimistic about sort of the next 30 years, but 50 years from now, I think to some degree we'll have figured this out. In other words, we'll have forms of renewable energy, we'll have new forms of uh, nuclear power production, which was actually the subject of my first book. And I think the technology is going to have advanced far enough by, let's say, 2065 that, you know, we won't need to burn much coal anymore. Um, 30 years, we're still going to be in that transition period. And so, you know, coal is going to be with us. And, and again, it's one thing to talk about the U.S. where we are making this transition fairly rapidly. It's entirely another thing to talk about China and India and the other countries of Asia where it's going to take much longer to make this shift. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually going to India in about three weeks on assignment. And if you look at India, there's 300 million people without access to reliable electricity. So that's basically the population of the U.S. living with kerosene lamps and and uh, no access to reliable electricity. And Prime Minister Modi, who took office last year, has pledged to bring reliable electricity either on the grid or off grid to the full population. And how he's going to do that without burning a lot of coal is is very difficult to see. And so they've set 
very ambitious goals for uh, solar power in particular. And, you know, I wish them luck, but, but I think they're, they're very optimistic and it's going to be, it's going to, you know, the, in, in many ways, the fate of the planet depends on how fast China and India can move away from coal. Richard, that was intense. And <laughs> thank you very much for being here. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And that was Richard Martin, author of Cold Wars. And we've linked to it on our site at scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Schell, and I'm joined by Jeff Dayette, the Assistant Director of Energy Research and a Senior Energy Analyst in the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Thanks for being here, Jeff. Thanks, Desiree, for having me. Now, we understand that many countries in the world are trying to reduce their dependency on coal. But my question is why? Because at this point, many of us just kind of take it as a given. Uh, so let's break this down for folks, starting with what is coal exactly? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, coal is largely carbon, uh, hydrogen, and oxygen with a whole lot of other uh, small parts of other toxic metals and, and uh, impurities and mixed into it. And it's formed essentially deep underground or, or most of the time deep underground when dead plant matter kind of uh, is subjected to geological forces of heat and pressure over hundreds of millions of years. And so as time goes by, the plant matter um, turns um, into a low-carbon peat form, uh, and then uh, as time goes further on, it turns into coal. Uh, and if we waited much, much, much longer, it might turn into something like diamonds. Uh, coal is pretty high in energy and carbon content. It has a, a, a wide variety of, of properties, so it's, it's often categorized into four different uh, ranks. Um, one is uh, uh, lignite. Um, Another is what they call subbituminous coal. Then there's bituminous coal, and then there's anthracite. And that ranking goes in order of increase in, in carbon and energy content. Well, now, how, how do we get it from a lump of rock to energy? Can you take us all the way through that process? We extract coal um, from the ground. Uh, we transport it, process it and then we burn it, um, and then we deal with the waste from burning it. So that's sort of the life cycle um, process. But if you just start at the, at the very beginning where we extract coal, you know, in, you know, in, in its process, it's, it's fairly simple, simple technique. It's, um, you know, just expose it, um, break it up, uh, just like rock, into small pieces, and then cart it off so you can burn it someplace. You know, and uh, we extract coal in two primary ways uh, here in the United States and, and, and largely around the world. Uh, you can do it through underground mining, um, or you can do uh, um, more recent techniques to allow for surface mining. Um, if we're looking at the underground mining side of this, uh, two really dominant methods for, um, uh, for, for extracting coal are what they uh, refer to as room and pillar techniques, 
uh, for mining or long wall mining. And in room and pillar, uh, essentially what you're doing is you're going into a large seam of coal and, and uh, you're extracting it, but you're leaving big pillars in the middle of, of massive rooms to help support the the, the ceiling essentially from collapsing on coal miners. Um, long wall mining, uh, you basically cut long tunnels into a coal seam uh, and then you extract the coal by conveyor belt. Uh, and um, uh, there's hydraulic support systems and other things uh, to hold the overhead rock in place as you do that. Um, you know, underground mining is one of the most hazardous occupations, though, uh, in in the world, uh, and uh, you know it's responsible for killing and injuring many people in accidents. It's a very dangerous uh, occupation to have, uh, and it's associated uh, health problems, which we can get into in a few minutes. But um, what we've seen in 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 terms of coal extraction is a is a is a major shift a, a away from underground mining towards more surface mining techniques. And surface mining is uh, involves less uh, uh, need for, um, uh, for for individual workers. So per unit of worker, you can extract a lot more coal using large equipment um, instead of uh, humans underground. Uh, and essentially, what you're doing is you're you're clearing vegetation and soil from the surface, uh, um, and then whatever layers of sediment and rock are underneath that. Uh, and then you blast that out of the way, you remove it, and then you basically open up and expose the, the coal seams to um, uh, to drag lining or, or you know some other way of, of pulling that out and taking it away in, in trucks uh, and conveyor belts. Um, that's a that's a major practice for extraction in in the western part of the United States. Um, in the east, uh, another even more destructive form of surface mining is is known as mountaintop removal mining. Uh, and in that case, what you're doing is you're literally um, stripping away trees from the mountaintop and then blasting hundreds of feet of the mountain away um, using explosives and having all that. Um, uh, uh, overburden um, just pushed down into into adjacent valleys, burying streams and destroying everything that's in that path in order to expose um, uh, the seams of coal, which then can be extracted. So, um, you know, in the United States, uh, we've seen, uh, and, and throughout the world, frankly, we've seen, um, due to a variety of influences, the, the industry of mining uh, coal uh, undergo dramatic changes in the past few decades. So there's what I mentioned, the mechanization of coal mining. So the amount of coal produced per, per worker has, has um, dr risen dramatically, uh, re resulting in employment going down, um, but um, you know, also improving safety. Uh, uh, we've seen surface mining methods overtake underground mining as the predominant way of extracting coal. Uh, and we've seen, uh, at least uh, here in the United States, uh, that extraction has shifted um, from the eastern part of the United States in the Appalachian uh, region of this country to the western part of the United States. Uh, now 40% of all um, coal uh, production in the United States comes from Wyoming's Powder River Basin. Now you've mentioned some of uh, some of the uh, the effects on the miners, but what are the environmental effects of these processes, like for mining right to use? Right. Well, I mean, there are real and substantial environmental and human health costs that kind of accrue and uh, at every point along the the coal supply chain. So from extraction all the way to to um, use. And so. You know, and with, with mining, the most obvious, as I said, is is the um, direct threat to health and safety faced by coal miners. Um, black lung disease being um, still today a common ailment, ailment among uh, coal miners. 
Um, uh, with underground mining, you also have acid mine drainage, um, where you've got that water will flow through um, coal mines that aren't properly managed. Uh, they become highly acidic, uh, and rich in heavy metals, uh, and then that drainage, um, you know, can seep into aquifers or into open sources, and uh, you know, cause. Uh, contamination of, of, of water supplies that threaten humans as well as plant and animal life. Surface mining, um, you know, as I said, particularly mountaintop re removal has both short-term and long-term environmental impacts. Um, all of those, uh, uh, well, let's see, today there's about 500 or a little more than 500 mountaintop removal sites um, that uh, exist within the Appalachian region, primarily in West Virginia and Eastern Kentucky. Uh, and that's affecting scarring essentially about a million and a half acres of, of land. And so what we've seen is 2,000 miles or more um, of, of headwater streams buried um, as a re result of uh, the overburden from blasting uh, mountains, mountaintops off into valley stream, uh, into deep valleys. Uh, very rich, biologically diverse parts of the country, um, completely altered. Uh, and then you've got, of course, the uh, the impact on surrounding communities, um, again, pollution of local water and drinking supplies um, with toxics such as arsenic, lead, um, selenium. Um, you know, you also have risks and dangers of mudslides, landslides, flash floods um, from, from, uh, from mountaintop removal. Uh, then you get into sort of the fossil fuel transport, right? We, we produce... Um, uh, coal in, in many states, although it's concentrated in, in just a handful of states, and then but we, we actually burn it um, in, in almost every state in, in the United States, uh, and uh, so it needs to be transported, and in most cases that's done by rail, um, roughly three-quarters of, of the um, coal production in the United States is transported by, by rail, um, the, the rest is done by barge or by truck, um, and in all three of those cases you've got um, you know, you've got the emissions from the diesel fuel used to, uh, in that transport. You've got, um, which which uh, is a major source of uh, uh, nitrogen di uh, dioxide and soot, particulate matters. Um, and then you've also got uh, the issue of coal dust. Um, um, when coal is transported by rail, when it's not covered up, the individual rail cars are not covered, you have coal dust uh, all along the entire uh, corridor of transport. Um, which can create, you know, serious cardiovascular and respiratory ailments. Um, uh, and then um, getting into the, the, the you know, the, the, the most uh, significant um, impacts of, of our coal dependence uh, on public health and the environment, and that's when we get it to the coal plant and, and, and burn it. Um, you know, first and foremost, you have the carbon emissions that are associated with that. Um, coal power is the single largest source of of CO2 emissions, carbon dioxide emissions, uh, in the United States, um, the leading source of, of climate change, of our, of our climate change emissions here in the United States. Um, and we know the, you know, the, the global impacts um, from, a, from a warming climate uh, as a result of, of burning fossil fuels in general, um, but, but coal being a significant part of that. And then you've got the, um, you've got the air pollution, um, direct air pollution associated with coal burning, um, things like sulfur dioxide. Um, which contribute to acid rain um, and help form the uh, necessary to form um, particulate matter. Uh, you've got nitrogen oxide emissions, um, which also contribute to acid rain and, and ground level ozone or smog. 
uh, issues. Um, you've got particulate matter, as I mentioned before, um, that cr produces haze and causes bronchitis, uh, um, chronic bronchitis. It aggravates asthma um, and uh, elevated occurrence of premature death in humans. Um, and then, you know, coal-fired coal power plants are the largest source of mercury emissions uh, uh, in the air in the United States today. Um, and we know that mercury bioaccumulates in the environment, um, and um, particularly we are, as humans, most exposed to it through the consumption of fish, uh, and that uh, mercury in fish causes neurological and, and other uh, neurobehavioral effects in, in infants uh, and young children. So, um, uh, and then when you burn the coal, um, you have um, waste products, um, either a, a wet slurry or dry ash. Um, these need to be stored in, in, uh, in holding um, um, ponds. Um, that creates risks for uh, air pollution and water pollution associated um, with that. So, um, as I said, at every every stage of this of the life cycle of coal production uh, and electricity generation from coal, we see significant public health and environmental impacts. I should really learn not to schedule super depressing interviews first thing in the morning. <laughs> This is Science for the People, and I'm talking to Jeff Dayette about coal. So how about clean coal? Maybe explain what that is, and then we'll talk about if there's actually benefit there. Yeah, you know, when I hear the term clean coal, I always ask myself, you know, well, compared to what? Um, you know, coal... Um, when compared to, you know, historically the way that we burn, uh, have burned coal um, in what we call pulverized coal power plants. So you basically just crush the, the coal rocks up into powder and you stick them in a boil and you burn them. Uh, and then you have smokestack emissions. So, um, you know, yes, we have innovation. Um, we made great strides in innovation and pollution controls at the smokestack. Um, and we also have new techniques to gasify coal before burning it. Um, uh, that makes the process of, of uh, electricity generation from coal cleaner, cleaner than uh, not controlling for those pollutions. Uh, uh, and in some cases, you know, we can make dramatic improvements in coal so, uh, or in, in these emissions. So uh, we have the capacity to remove um, sulfur dioxide, you know, upwards of 90%. Same with mercury. We have the, these technologies um, either through scrubbers or other advanced uh, technologies um, through the flu uh, gas process of burning coal um, where we can reduce these emissions. Um, but many coal plants uh, in the United States actually lack these pollution controls. Nearly half of our aging coal fleet here in the United States lack adequate controls for, for SO2, for sulfur dioxide, um, simple scrubbers. Um, nearly 80% lack uh, uh, adequate controls or have outdated pollution controls for particulate matters. So um, it's not a matter of having the technology available. It's whether or not we, we use it uh, appropriately. The, the biggest and most uh, serious pollutant from coal power um, in terms of, of climate change, uh, CO2 emissions, you know, we don't have, uh, you know, a, a readily available, inexpensive way of controlling for carbon emissions. There is emerging technology in, in capturing carbon and storing it underground, um, but it's still an immature, uh, it's still technology, it's still very expensive to do, and it, uh, you know, is, has limited applications. And that doesn't account for the other life cycle impacts uh, um, of, of coal production from, you know, from the extraction to the transport um, to the dealing with the, the, the waste products. Um, those, those impacts remain um, in terms of becoming, you know, whether, assessing whether coal can be environmentally cleaner. 
Uh, you know, and we have much, much cleaner and more affordable alternatives available um, today. Um, that's why we're seeing this transition away from coal. It's, it's an outdated um, technology that's uh, becoming economically um, unsustainable, frankly, uh, in terms of building new coal plants. Uh, it's far cheaper to, to um, use uh, solar uh, and wind in some parts of the United States, certainly natural gas, a cleaner burning, though still fossil fuel technology is, is uh, very much more affordable than, than, than new coal. Uh, and, you know, the cost of, of upgrading and, and maintaining an aging coal fleet, um, you know, is, is just becoming too expensive. And so that's why we're seeing a number of coal plants here in the United States uh, closed down. Uh, and we are making this transition to cleaner technologies. So you're talking about those other options for cleaner technologies. Um, how practical is that at this point, if we were to switch completely from coal to something else? Well, you know, this process is going to take a little bit of time. Um, we're not going to do that overnight, but um, it's, it's, it's not just practical, it's inevitable. We have the solutions available to us today in the power sector to generate clean, sustainable, affordable, and reliable electricity, primarily using um, renewable energy technologies like wind, solar, uh, geothermal, even some forms of sustainable uh, hydropower and bioenergy technologies can be can uh, contribute to that to that supply mix. We can um, invest heavily um, in untapped um, uh, abilities to to use electricity more efficiently. Um, whether that's in lighting or industrial processes, um, we have. Uh, uh, made great strides in using electricity more uh, efficiently, we can do much more there too. And so we can get more bang for our buck and we can use cleaner sources. Um, we're doing that um, here in the United States today. Uh, you know, we've seen some regions of the country, some states in the United States go from, you know, virtually no renewable energy dependence to, you know, 20, 30% already today. Some states like California, um, you know, our largest state uh, and second largest energy consumer is, is committing itself uh, to 50% renewables uh, over the next uh, decade and a half. Um, so we are seeing um, these technologies um, powering an industrialized economy and doing it in, in an affordable and reliable way. You sound optimistic, sir. Uh, I am optimistic. I, I think, we, you know, this has been a long, long uh, transition, but, um, you know, and it will take a lot longer, too, because the power, uh, the political power and the economic um, power of the fossil fuel industry is still standing in the way of this transition, and they're going to fight um, till the end to protect their assets. Um, so I don't expect this transition to happen overnight, but just the, the, the vast um, cost reductions that we've seen in, in particularly solar and wind technologies in the last five to seven years um, through economies of scale, through technology breakthroughs have been um, just so impressive that I think we have, we have uh, uh, turned the tide here uh, and, um, you know, are moving towards a, a cleaner um, energy economy here in the United States. Um, we're seeing, uh, you know, hopefully other um, uh, parts of the world um, leapfrog uh, coal and go straight to these cleaner technologies. We have a lot of work to do. Um, we have not a lot of time to do it in, uh, in, in order to avoid the, the most catastrophic impacts of climate change. Um, but uh, I, I'm lucky I get to work on the solution side of this, and I see these technologies um, um, you know, the innovation just, just uh, happening um, uh, so quickly, and, and it does make me optimistic that we can solve this problem. Thanks very much for walking us through that, Jeff. 
Yeah, thank you for having me. And we've linked to the Union of Concerned Scientists on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. And if you happen to be on our site, do click the links to Twitter, Facebook, and Google+, where we post show news and other articles we think you might enjoy, and to iTunes so that you can listen to past episodes, subscribe to the show, or leave a review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.